This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You've probably heard of Cliff Gray. You may be even following Cliff Gray. Cliff is a outfitter, guide, used to be a professional outfitter, got out two years ago. And uh, we've been sort of circling each other for quite some time in terms of wanting to have this conversation around wildlife management. And he's got some pretty interesting views and I've got some pretty interesting views. And I just wanted us to get together and we finally made it happen. Really, really enjoyed having some quality discussion with someone who just has spent so much time in the field over a very long period of time. And as such, has formed some opinions on opportunity, on access, on amount of hunters in the field, all the things that a lot of conversation is wrapped around. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So I'm wearing a hat. It's actually a little warmer today here in Memphis. It's been, we finally, finally, finally have some fall weather. Wow, fifties. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're wearing a beanie, so inside. Yeah, well, you're just having a bad hair day. Yeah, well, I don't have any hair, dude. See. 
that's long gone, man. Um, so, uh, so that's part of the problem, but, uh, yeah, no, it's a little chillier here. I'm actually up in Oregon right now. Um, but same deal. It's like, it's weird. Cause it doesn't matter where you're at. Like, uh, temperatures vary based on like humidity, right? I don't think it's that much colder. Oh my gosh. So much colder here than, than you're talking Robbie, but it sure feels like it, you know? You're nailing it, dude. I'm telling you, I had a PhD student when I was a professor at Mississippi State who came to me from Minnesota. And we were telling him about winters in Mississippi and whatnot. She's like, oh, don't worry. I deal with winters in Minnesota. I said, "Mm -mm -mm -mm." yeah, yeah. You're going to be the coldest you have ever been in Mississippi. Yeah, just the humidity. And she's she's like, no way. And when it's 34, 35, and it can't snow, and it's just this misty rain, and the humidity's at 80%, and it's just bone chilling it's just miserable oh yeah it's a different different world so uh yeah no i hear you man what are you still doing in oregon you're still working for um yeah so i mean i'll I'll keep it short robbie not to bore your you don't have to keep it short come on (laughs) but um my life so i sold my primary outfitting business now it's been a little over two years and then since then i've done I do. Have, I've got some little businesses going on on my front, on my personal front, but I'm still kind of freelance guiding. So I okay. actually spend about half the year, half the year I live in Puerto Rico, and then half the year, half the year now I spend in Hood River. But a lot of my guidings in Colorado, um, some of my guidings in Oregon, kind of all over the place. Cool, dude. So you are um, James now. You're still in around the area with James, James Nash. Yeah, 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 yeah. In you know, a different I, place right now. Yeah, so I, I don't live real close to James. You know, he's more of an Eastern Oregon guy. Um, but I spent a fair amount of time with him, and uh, and I was guiding with him for the majority of archery elk season. So Western Oregon is home for you? No, I've got family here. Um, so Puerto Rico is technically home for me nowadays. Wow. <laughs> A little, here's a little tidbit that nobody knows about. I don't think I've even talked about this on a podcast. I might have talked about this on one podcast. You know that I did a sports fisheries restoration project in Puerto Rico? Oh, really? As a professor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where, where was it? What part of the island? Uh, southwest. Okay. Um, so we went through Ponce. I can't really remember the little town that we lived in. The guy that we, we rented a place from a fish farmer. Who was okay. raising like tilapia and whatnot, and um, we were dealing with all of the all of the reservoirs. Puerto Rico, obviously, you know this, but for yeah. everyone's edification, you have phenomenal reservoirs. That so our hypothesis, the reason we're doing fish work there, because uh, same thing with Pittman Robertson from the hunting side. On the fishing side, there's Dingle Johnson money that come through sports fisheries restoration. Puerto Rico being an affiliate of that through the United States yeah. gets. Sports Fisheries Restoration Dollars. Okay. And um, the environment of Puerto Rico is not conducive to grow big bats. And I'm talking just largemouth bats. Yeah. The reason being is that they literally spawn themselves to a absolutely tiny slot class. Oh, okay. Because there's no winter or summer. They just constantly breed. Yeah, yeah. I, I got you. So what we, the, the whole project was to put triploid F1 Florida strained largemouth bass into the, into the reservoirs of Puerto Rico. Yeah, okay. And what a triploid bass does is he doesn't breed or she doesn't breed, doesn't reproduce. 
It's just putting on weight. It just eats. Oh, okay. It's the same scenario as the, um, again, way out of your realm of what you typically do. It's the same deal with the single oyster shell industry. When you buy a single oyster, select oyster in an oyster bar, that is typically a triploid oyster that's been grown in a farm type of environment. And those triploid oysters, because they all look the same, because they're putting all of their energy into growth and not putting their energy into spawning. Oh, I got, are they, are they, what, what makes them triploid? Is that that they, they just can't reproduce? Is it a genetic Correct. thing or have they been? It's a genetic thing. Okay. It's, a, it's a modified genetic thing. Well, not really modified. It's a crossbreeding to create a triploid. Well, okay. Is, is, is a mule a triploid? Technically, oh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know, Anybody, man. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I don't I'm know not, either. I'm not trying to drag. I'm not either. trying to drag you into a question that I know the answer to. <laughs> I'm just curious. No, no. I would. Uh, I'll. I'll do some research. I don't know. I'll. I'll. I'll DM you the answer. I do not know. I think a mule is a sterile cross. Oh, okay. I believe. Yeah, yeah. Versus being a true triploid. Yeah, I hear. Um, but yeah, the triploid is. It's anyway. That's uh. So Puerto Rico, yeah, I had great times in Puerto Rico. We caught some some crazy fish in some of the reservoirs, like huge goldfish. Oh yeah, huge orange. Uh, I think some sort of tilapia. Yeah, they got peacock um, bass and a lot of them now. Like it's uh, the the fishing there, and that's probably like one of the main reasons I spend a bunch of time there. I've got some other reasons too. I've got a brother who lives there. Um, there's some other reasons for that. He's got kids the same age as my kids, but um. I, uh, I'm amazed by, there's a lot of aspects of it, you know, Robbie, that feel like, feel like a lot of the outdoor activities that I was exposed to here, like 25, 30 years ago, like they feel, they feel almost like undiscovered there. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's not mm. that they're undiscovered. I think it's that, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, wildlife management issues and that sort of thing, but the island has had so much turmoil, like politically and then with the hurricanes and everything else it's it's like on these type of things they're always restarting you know what i mean so i mean even their wildlife man or their their fishing regulations are wild from my perspective man like there's no like for instance they have regulations and they have you know just like everywhere else they have you know state regulations for the the waters that are you know technically not federal waters and they have fishing licenses you ha you're supposed to buy, but they don't have any institution that sells the fishing right. licenses. So it's just yeah, an yeah. It, they're always like it, it's it's interesting because it's like it's going through this evolution, but never quite getting there in terms of wildlife management. So, how long do you think you've been in the wildlife outfitting game, Cliff? Yeah, so. There's, it's, there's probably a complicated answer and a simple answer. So professionally, I worked in Colorado. I did some stuff in British Columbia for roughly 13 years. So most of my adult working life, right? Like I started, I started in my early, like my, well, my mid-20s. I did some other stuff before that. And then I got out of it technically like from a business perspective two years ago. So you're talking like 12, 13 years. Um, now... To extend on that, I grew up around it. My dad was an outfitter. My dad was a cattle rancher. So he, he, you know, he outfitted on wilderness areas and national forest areas, and then he grazed cattle on forest mm. service and wilderness areas too in Colorado. So I mm. guess you could add another 
a little bit of time due to that too. So most of my life, man, I guess would be the answer. So grew, grew up hunting, dad took you hunting. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Robbie. My dad, my dad didn't take me hunting that much because he really? did it. He did, well, he did it professionally. You know what I mean? Oh, so, so, yeah, you know, yeah, a guy, yeah. So he didn't want to, he got back. It's almost this, I, I hate to cut you off, but it's this, exactly the same scenario I'm in right now. Okay. Is that I fight for hunting every single day. One, I don't get to hunt very much anymore my, for myself. Sure. But I hardly ever get to hunt with my kids. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, and I don't know if that's because I'm valuing the time when I'm not fighting just to like chill the hell out. Sure. Or, you know, but we did go dove hunting. I really, like, I'm trying. Like, I've got to find this balance, man. Jeez. Yeah, no, I'm, and I'm totally with you, with you, Robbie. I, I've got these small kids right now, too. And I, I, I hate to say it, man, because all my years of outfitting, and I was doing cool outfitting, man. Like, all, well, at least from my perspective, is cool. You know, all the horseback stuff, the wilderness stuff, you know, the, the type of hunting that so many people have nostalgia for. And my kids... For the most, for most of that time, they were very young, you know. So it's kind of hard to integrate them into that type of hunting, just because the logistics. But I didn't do a very good job of it. I think, I think I'll regret that in ten years. But within the bounds of this conversation, um, my dad was the same way. Like he was just, you know, he was working so hard during the hunting seasons and stuff. I don't think he really had a big interest in taking you know, taking me on, on hunts as a kid. And, he, and, he, and I'm not saying he didn't expose me to hunting. I was exposed to it. Um, in a matter of fact, my dad was huge fisherman, you know, hey. like recreationally. So he would take us on fishing trips. I mean, even when he didn't have probably the means to do it, he would take us to Alaska. There's a lot of things that he did do for us. So I don't mean it in that regard, but the one thing that I did get a lot of exposure to hunting once, one, it was just around me, like, day-to-day life as a kid but I was exposed to a lot of people that were around him so guys that guided for him guys that were friends of his and a lot of those individuals even though now they're 25 years older than me they're some of my biggest hunting partners right Mm -hmm. um and they were and so I did get exposure uh that way um but it's kind of interesting that like you say man when you're into something and you spend all your you know professional career uh, de- dealing with it, um, you tend to not expose your kids to it. I, I, there's probably practical reasons for that, and there's probably some psychological reasons, you know. Yeah, I want to. It just it's a it's a time balance issue right now. I think from my perspective, which I need to work on. Yeah, I um, hear you. But typically, I do. Again, everyone heard me say this. I do a terrible job. We're 11 minutes in this podcast. I haven't even introduced you, Cliff Gray. That's all good. So. Cliff Gray, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. It's been a, it's been a minute, but we've finally uh, managed to connect. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you've given a little bit of intro to who you are. Um, I don't think much more needs to be added to who you are. If, do you think you want to add some something else from an intro perspective? No. I mean, you know, people, people are going to listen to this podcast. We'll have an interesting conversation. They'll know a little bit more about my my views on things and politics and that sort of thing, but there's a lot of media out there on me, so they can go check that out if they want some more on the background. It's it's <laughs> it's boring if you're not me, I guess. So so it's all good. So let me ask this question: since you brought it up, your your dad was in the business. You were surrounded by guys that were around your dad that were in the business. You yourself got in the business. 
has the business changed? The outfitting has business. The, yeah. Yeah. So big time. I mean, well, there's so I would say the public land outfitting world has drastically changed, Robbie. And I think that because goes because of what? Uh, what's that? Because of what? So I think oh, dude, like we're we're gonna talk about that for like an hour and a half, just so you know. So I think there's a couple things, man. One, the public land hunter, like the Western public land hunter, has become way more competent. And I don't mean that in like mm. in any derogatory way towards, you know, guys that used to hunt in the sixties and seventies. Cause part of it part of it is probably like the transfer of knowledge and skill set, but part of it is just gear, you know. Guys are way more competent. They're in better shape. They can get where they can get to parts of the wilderness where outfitters ruled. You know what I mean? And I think this is very prevalent in Colorado, uh, where there's just a growing human population. But the other Western states, it's the same. Um, there's just more access. More guys are capable. You see it even if you talk to the guys in northern British Columbia or places that are very remote. They're starting to deal with more kind of public you know public competition however you want to want to frame yeah, because it. they're on crown land up there right yeah. it's, it's almost like if you're a if you're a resident of canada of that respective province regardless if an outfitter has a a lease over the area they can go in anytime they want yeah sure yeah i mean they you know they they in some areas they got to draw tags you know some areas are just over the counter for a bunch of, or the equivalent of over the counter so so they deal with that same pressure and that dynamic and that that's changed the outfitting world, I think, in the sense that uh, there's maybe just a little more, like a, a little more uh, competition amongst do-it-yourself hunters and, and outfitters. I think that that's probably something that's changed. And then also, there's just been a different value proposition that public uh, public land outfitters uh, are providing. Um, and I think really the big result of that is that a lot of outfitters have got into diversifying into private land leases, that yeah. sort of deal. And then yeah. the other component, uh, I can tell you specifically for Colorado, but a lot of the other a lot of the other areas, um, or a lot of the other states, specifically in Colorado, it, it's really interesting, and I think this. This is probably my a unique perspective I have growing up around it and growing up around cattle ranching. Um, and then it's also probably where I have some bias, Robbie, and I'll admit that. And that's when I was a kid, the when I was a kid and before I was a you know, before my time in Colorado, like we're talking about the eighties, early nineties, there was a there was an enormous amount of predator suppression in Colorado. In, in, insane. I, I, or not, I mean, I shouldn't call it insane, but it was very heavy. Um, and I think to this day that history has been uh, in, in some ways rewritten that there wasn't that much predator suppression, but there was. And, and a huge proportion of it was livestock guys doing it for practical, mm. for practical purposes. There was, mm -hmm. if, you, if you, I mean, they're hard to find. But if you look at the numbers of sheep, you know, domestic sheep that were grazed on forest, cattle that were grazed on forest back in the day, you know, back in that period of time, it was way more. I mean, in, particularly in specific geographic areas, like if you look at the Vail Valley, you know, kind of that that lower Colorado River corridor, those areas, the amount of cattle that have, that have disappeared from that country is pretty drastic. 
And and you know, a lot of people will argue, including hunters, that you know, well, they were competitive to the elk, so that you know, there's some benefit to that, right? And I think you could have a long conversation about that. I think there's truth on both sides, but I can tell you that during the time that there was a lot of sheep and cattle uh, on forest and just a bigger ag community in Colorado, there was more predator suppression going on, and uh, and I think. In the you know late '80s and '90s, that predator suppression had a big overhang, and it resulted in an abundance of elk and deer. You know, in a lot of the real heyday of Colorado outfitting, I think this goes for other other states too. Um, was due to that there was just a surplus of elk, and and, mm. and it, it made it made the it made the outfitting, I think. Probably, you know, the economics of the business were the same. It's always been hard work. You had to be damn near irrational to be in the business. That's still the case now. Uh, You know, it's not like it's easy money. But back then, it was easier and logistics were easier and keeping clients and that sort of thing was easier because the volatility of the business was less because there was just a bigger surplus of primarily elk. I mean, the mule deer stuff fluctuated a little bit. Um, and a lot of that was like management practices, but the elk, I mean, there was a period of time when some of these big wilderness areas in Colorado, they were having September rifle cow hunts and just mowing down cows because they had a, you know, a pretty big, a pretty big surplus of elk. And that's the outfitting business thrived on that and it grew on that. Sorry yeah, for the, sorry for like, the long no, answer, no, man. No, no, <laughs> no, no, it was a good answer. And you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people forget about and when you said it, it made complete sense is the competence of people, specifically the physical competence of someone. You know, if you had to ask your dad or any of his buddies, I know my dad's answer to it. My dad's answer is going to be work out for what? Mm-hmm. Work out to go hunting? You're crazy. Yeah, I mean, so, and it's funny, Robbie, because I've had... I've had people tell me, like, there's always this thing of, like, oh, like, men used to be tougher. You know what I mean? And I'm like, probably in a lot of ways, that's true culturally, right? In hunting, it's not. You know, some of the guys that I ran into, I mean, the guys that I was starting to run into four or five years ago, I mean, it's crazy, man. And I've done a lot of backpack hunting in my life, but, you know, packing in six, seven miles during first or second rifle season at 11,000 feet, 12,000 feet, like you got to have, you know, you got to be like physically prepared in a serious way just to get in there, let alone, you know, stay there for four or five days, six days. It's very (laughs) difficult. Like that didn't exist. That didn't exist in the eighties. I mean, I shouldn't say it didn't exist, but it was pretty, maybe the dudes in the eighties were just, they weren't physically competent. They were just mentally gritty yeah yeah yeah. there's probably and they're just a part like of you're just like yeah you know fuck it we're just gonna yeah, we're yeah just gonna go and get away from the woman folk for a couple of days and just you know it's gonna be terrible but it'll be fine yeah yeah there's probably there's probably an element of that but i personally think that just in terms of it may be an unpopular view on things but in terms of just competent killing you know you know competent guys hunting in the wilderness areas it's gotten they've got people have gotten way better um, I, I, I think they've gotten way better 
And that happens to be happening during a time when the hunting has gotten a lot tougher. And also, do you think that they've, they've also gotten way better? Because uh, you could, I would envision, again, I don't have the statistics, I'm just hypothesizing here, but back in the 80s, 90s, the majority of the Western hunters are coming from Western states. Now you've got a lot of hunters coming outside the Western states that are even more, are just as competent. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, well, and they, and they have great gear, you know, and these, and these guys are dedicating, you know, dedicating their, their lives to it. It's really interesting, Rob. I, I don't, I, I try to reflect on it and really look at it uh, without the current times bias. You know, I, when I talk to my dad or grandpa or people of that uh, generation who hunt, they really kind of hunted for 10 days a year, five days a year, and they didn't really think about it that much. You know, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't I mean, I would say the vast, vast majority of hunters in the 80s and 90s shot their rifle one time a year, you know, um, and they got ready to go elk hunting. They went for six days. And the rest of the year, it wasn't their primary hobby. They had, they had yeah. other, they had a lot of other hobbies. I think for a lot of people that at least I interact with, and it may have, that might be my bias wholly. I think a lot of people, this Western elk hunting, mule deer hunting, it's become their, their year, you know, their year long passion. So that means they're spending way more money on gear. I mean, the, I, I have some in, like kind of some inside scoop on how big some of these camo companies are. Like I'll hear the revenue numbers. If you would have told me that one of those camo companies could have a revenue number that large, if you would have told me that yeah. 10 years ago, I would have been like, no yeah. way. There's no way that that, that much money is spent on camo. So you got the gear, you've got all the fitness stuff. You've got, you know, more and more archers, which archery just inherently, you've got to practice more. And the thing about archery is you can practice more. You can practice every day, right? So mm -hmm. there's a lot of these things that have really changed it into more of a lifestyle than I think it used to be. Cliff, one of the things you didn't mention was access. Yeah. Like purposely, or you don't think it's an issue? You mean access to hunting? Yeah, like public ground. Yeah, so I, yeah, I, I got a complicated answer to that to you, man. I don't think. <laughs> I imagine that. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's a. I don't think there's. I don't think there's a uh, issue with access to public ground necessarily. And I think a lot of these things are allowing people to get even better access. I mean, just Onyx. Or, you know, the other mapping softwares out there, Go Hunts, all these guys that got this mapping software, that in itself has inherently opened an insane amount of access to hunters that they didn't have in the 80s and 90s just because nobody... Totally agree. You know, so that... Totally agree. So that now, that the other flip side of that is I personally think, and it, and it, and it wraps into access, is that our opportunities on public land for decent hunting, I think that has decreased. Pretty, pretty, and I think, I don't, I don't see a lot of reasons why that's going to turn around in the short to midterm, Robbie. So, yeah, I think, I, me personally, I don't think public land access is a big problem for hunters. I think good opportunity in the supply of good hunts for people, I do think is an issue. And I, th I think it can be very trying for people. I interact with these, I interact with first-time elk hunters 
daily basis, man, because of my YouTube channel or, or, you know, any of my social media stuff, I try to help people. So I naturally like interact with these first time elk hunters. And like, I mean, think about it from a calling perspective. I get these guys that ask me about elk calling and they've been, they've been elk hunting for six years now, right? In the wilderness. And like, you know, I have to reflect on myself. If I was exposed to the same type of over-the-counter archery elk hunting that exists now, I don't know that I would have stuck to it for six years, you know? Mm-hmm. So these guys are studs, man, and, and it's hard to do that and keep grinding it. But when you talk to a guy who's done that uh, for six or seven years and he's struggling and he's kind of, he's got questions about calling, you realize like, oh, it used to be that, it used to be 10 years ago that you could get the amount of vocalization interaction that an individual gets in six or seven years. You used to be able to get it in nine days in the wilderness, you know, so that that dynamic has for sure changed. Well, you certainly mentioned that when you were up with James Nash. Yeah. In terms of the vocalizations you were hearing. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I was hunting, you know, we were guiding on on a on a private ranch, you know. Yeah. Um, and so there, yeah, you get the same thing. And I even reflect on it, Robbie, like I've, I've elk hunted most of my adult life and just being in a place that you're exposed to vocalizations more like in a normal, you know, uh, you know, dense elk populated area. It is, it's like, oh yeah, I'm getting tuned up really quick because I'm not spending 90% of my time just trying to find an elk. I mean, I'm going to be an elk every day. So you get tuned up on that part of it because you're exposed you're exposed to the vocalizations on a daily basis Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's you know a lot of people talk about the loss of public ground as one of the barriers to you know hunters and whatnot and i think you you make a really valid point in that the invention of onyx the invention of go hunt all these hunt apps actually has increased public land access and opportunity because you finally know where you can go oh yeah and where you can't go and i think there's a lot of places that people have been like oh man i never realized that that was actually public and i can go back there oh yeah yeah well the other, the other the thing that's op- happened is there's a bunch of private there's a bunch of guys that own private land that quit posting public access point you know there's a lot more everybody's on the same page you know what i mean a lot there was a lot mm-hmm. of public land back in the day in the west that Nobody could get into because everybody was claiming there was no access there, you know. And these yeah. this software, even the playing field, mm-hmm. where everybody kind of, but you know, was on the same page. But the opportunity thing is the key, I think. What you nailed on the head is the opportunity, and to me, I, I see it as a double-edged sword opportunity, and I see it that there's a lot more demand. Okay, so I see it as a demand thing. There's a lot more demand. There's a lot more. There's, you know, there's application services and whatnot. So people don't have to work as hard anymore. So there's a lot more demand, I think, on hunting resources. Yeah, certain, also, certain species for sure. Yeah, certain species. But I think you've also got to, you also got to blend that with one of the things you talked about earlier in Colorado, which is, you know, Colorado went through because of cattle and sheep, a very large sort of predation suppression era that then created an extra value well it it didn't actually create an extra value but it created more mule deer and elk on the landscape such that there was increased opportunity right so now we're dealing with in a lot of the western states an almost an equal balance dealing with ecosystem biodiversity number one but two 
you're seeing less elk and less mule deer on the landscape because you're seeing more predators on the landscape. Right. How do you balance that? How do you balance the desire for opportunity to hunt with the knowledge that, you know, the, the system is balancing itself out kind of scenario? Or let's be super controversial and say, the value that we see on the landscape isn't in mountain lions or wolves or bears. It's actually in mule deer and elk. Yeah, so so that's a tough. I mean, I mean, it's it's not a tough uh, question for me to answer, but there's a lot there's a lot there, Robbie. So we'll have to like work through it piece by piece because I sure. I got an opinion on all of it, man. Um, so I think so for me personally, if we're talking about geographies that I was in and have spent a lot of time in, let's take Colorado, Western Colorado, like the, the continental divide of Colorado. I don't think, I, I think the natural balancing of an ecosystem is in, within that geography, I think is completely made up. I think, I think people who, who think that that's even close to reality, I think they're either just super naive or I think they have their own incentive structure that wants to claim or, or uh, propose to people that that could be a reality, I think it's a total farce. I, I, if you leave things alone there, it, there's no natural balance there. You have a huge highway that serves the biggest ski resorts in the world. Right, um, right. You've got a game fence along the majority of that highway. You have, you have valleys up in the mountains of Colorado that, you know, the the carrying capacity of an apex an apex predator like a human you know historically has been like 30 people i mean if you look at the records of let's say like the eagle valley right so you got vale you've got eagle down to the glenwood canyon the utes that used to live there they used to winter in a little area called dotsero historically if you look at that that population of humans there and this is getting a little crazy robin no, we're going to go there I love if you it. look at that population, there was like every time they got above 40 or 50 people, they, they couldn't survive. They would, they'd get up to 80 or 90 and they'd drop back down to 40 or 50. And it's because they were, they were killing wintering elk in there and, or wintering animals. They actually hunted quite a few bighorns in there. But whatever their you know, natural carrying capacity was, it was like 40 or 50 people total, right? Yeah. So you're taking this ecosystem that the natural human carrying capacity is 40 or 50 people and now there's you know close to a hundred thousand people across that valley massive hotels huge ski resorts massive highway and somehow there's this concept that you're going to bring back a natural you know natural cyclical ecosystem i it's to me it makes it to me it's insane to think that that's plausible you know so go ahead, Robbie. But wouldn't it be but wouldn't it be a laudable goal to try to balance as best as you can given the human fingerprint that is existing on the landscape and know that it's going to increase in the future? Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree with that, you know. And so so I totally agree with that. I don't I don't think we should just, you know, leave leave the, the wildlife that are there to fend fend for themselves and, you know, yeah you know, whatever happens, happens. I, I don't think that's a good approach. And I think that leads us to the more complicated part of your question, right? And that's that, okay, 
if we if we agree that the wildlife has to be managed because we've basically created an unsustainable your or the the idea of a natural ecosystem coming back on its own is gone, right? So let's assume that we agree on that. The next question we have is like, well, what you know, how are we going to manage this thing? Because now we have to manage it really in an economic sense, right? There's not, I mean, people say, oh, well, you know, wildlife is not just about money, Cliff. It's not, you know, it's, you know, how is a, uh, you know, a, a grouse worth any less than a 185 inch bighorn ram, right? And so, and these are valid questions, you know, and I, I've had these discussions with people. And the, the issue I have with it, Robbie, and, and we, ha- we have to throw in like the agriculture component too, because that provides True. value to people too. So you have that going on here also. And so I, it's, a, it's, a really compli- it's a really complicated answer. It's like, it's like these big economic questions that we have to figure out. Like, you know, what, what's the, you know, what makes more sense for us to control to have some, some excess of you know, where's the value at? I, it's a really harsh way of looking at the, the wildlife in these areas. Maybe harsh isn't the word, but it's like a, I don't know how to describe it, but I understand why people scoff at the idea, but I don't know any other way, right? Any other resource that we manage as humans that we acknowledge is, has been backed into a corner where we have to manage it. We, we manage it on an economic system, right? So I don't know I, that we, that's the only answer that I can provide, right? Is that hey, if there's if there's value, let let's take lions in that part of the part of the world, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Or part of the part of the state. And this is like current controversy, right? I've hunted them there. Um, I've experienced them there. I can tell you that in the Eagle Valley, there are probably ten x the amount of lions there were when I was a kid. So they're a healthy population. The question is, to the extreme, well, do we just want a bunch of big mule deer to monetize through the fish and games, you know, public process of draws and stuff? Right. Is it okay for us to just say, hey, we just want, we just want to kill all the lions, so that's our primary, um, you know, that's, you know, they're worth more than lions? I don't think so, but, you know, I per- my personal belief is no, I think there should be a, you know, a certain number of lions that we agree to, but I do believe that it makes economic sense for there to for there to continue being a surplus of mule deer because that's what funds the economic system that takes care of the lions and mule deer. That's I, I don't it's sound it's gonna be just a strictly rational approach to it, but I don't see any other solution. Well it's a very sensible approach and the approach is that and that's why you have experts that's why the state, you know, Fish and Wildlife Agency, the, the DNR, and whatever state you live in, that's why you hire biologists that get trained in, you know, land grant institutes around the country, around the world, on wildlife management principles, and those principles also are baked in, based on the state that they're working in, working for the people of the state. That is what the state agency does right. to value the resources that the people of the state value. Right. And so I don't think it's wrong. Some people are going to value mountain lions. Some people are going to value mule deer. There may be more people that value mule deer over mountain lions. But to your point, and I think 100% of, of hunters would agree, 
doesn't mean we want to get rid of mountain lions. Right. It may just mean that there's an added management on mountain lions so that there is a maybe a slight balance skewed towards mule deer in certain landscapes or certain ecosystems that will generate an economic value beyond a standard balanced system for the department for conservation for wildlife in the state. Yeah. I'll also add this. It also you're not we're also not saying here get rid of all the mountain lions to increase hunt opportunity. Right. Which is then here's where sort of things get a little intricate because there's the cry we we've talked about already you've said opportunity is down. Yet at the same time, we're saying, look, we value the balance, though. We're not asking for, we know opportunities down. We would wish to have opportun- more opportunity, but we're not crossing the line into saying, get rid of all of, I'm just going to say, wildlife X, so that wildlife Y is much more abundant on the landscape. Right. No, I would I would agree with that. I do think we're saying that we don't want it to get we don't want it to get worse. And I don't it's not like it's like horrible like there's horrible opportunity now, but I would say that we're you know, I if I if we specifically think about lions, Robbie, I mean every trail system in Eagle, Colorado has got a sign on it that says watch for mountain lions, right? They're not yeah. there's not the amount of first of all, if you see if you see a mountain lion and you're not hunting them, it's like you were just given the ultimate it's experience. A yeah, like yeah, yeah, the yeah. ultimate experience, right? And in those areas, it's not that uncommon for hikers, you know, uh, people walking their dogs to see lions, right? So there's healthy populations there. I think really what, you know, we're not to be specific on one subject, but I think really what hunters are, are saying is like, hey, they're healthy now. And we are hunting them, so why would why don't we just continue that, right? Um, and and if we continue that at the rate it is, maybe this is the this is the the happy medium that we agree to, right? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It's, I mean, it it this is like such a complicated. It's, what 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 do you what do you think about like our mule deer? I've heard a lot of people decry like, man, we don't have the mule deer that we used to have. Yeah, we don't. In great places that used to have mule deer. So is there, may I be even more controversial and say, should we be reducing the amount of tags available now for mule deer so that opportunity is greater in 5, 10, 20 years time? Well, so, I mean, mule deer are super complicated, Robbie, because they, they're the one that is so they're so they're so unadaptable right to like this the habitat stuff has a huge impact on them so when all these mountain valleys are developed there's probably just overall it doesn't really matter if you pulled hunting way back if you suppress lions harder you're you're going to have winter winter's going to wipe the top of them off anyways in terms of the population so i i think that probably as hunters we're going to have to get in the mindset that 
you know, unless there's some magical thing that's going to happen to the future, you know, the future development of these winter range areas, I think we're going to have to get used to probably a lower amount of opportunity on free range mule deer hunting up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. I think that's just the reality. I don't, I don't know that there's a bunch of management goals. I will say that, um, or a bunch of management things we can directly do that are going to change that for like this, like the consistent long term. I think that to answer your question more actively, my view on mule deer in Colorado, particularly in the mountain units, is that the fishing game, the state fishing game management always lags three or four years, right? So as, and that doesn't, it's not just mule deer, it's all populations. It takes three or four years of everybody observing lower populations for it to finally trickle, trickle in and there to be management decisions, uh, or, you know, management decisions around that. Yeah, I mean, we probably, for sure, my view, and it's biased, but, uh, and, and it's because I like hunting mule deer and I like hunting big mule deer and those, some of those areas are the best genetics in the world. I think that the amount of tags that are in the late season doesn't make sense. And they'll, they're going to mm. start to reduce those at some point. There might be some other, there might be some other reasons they don't do that. You know, I know there's a Colorado in particular, there's some talk about, you know, a lot of them, a lot of the management there is around the concern around CWD. So there might be some other things that are outside of like the whole population dynamic and hunter opportunity that are, that are going on there. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't mean to get off track there, but. Well, quality deer management like they do for whitetails, would that help? I mean, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea. But do they have slot? Not it wouldn't be a slot restriction because it's a that's not a it's a fish. Yeah. But antler restrictions, point restrictions, width restrictions. Yeah, does the, that occur anywhere in the west? Yeah, yeah. So the the best way to protect big mule deer is to hunt them less in the rut. You know what I mean? So if you if you, so Colorado has rut seasons, right? So third, fourth rifle season, you know they they shift a little bit year to year. But for the most part, they're rut hunts. And so if you reduce the quotas during those hunts, your deer will get bigger. At least in the mountain units, the big, the, you know, the real big mule deer, it could be, you know, everybody wants to say it's just they're smarter. Um, but I, I personally think it just has to do with whatever set, you know, whatever set of lifestyle they chose, the places they go, the way they migrate, they tend to avoid some of the hunting pressure. Those those big deer like that, their their most susceptible time is their rut, and that's when they get that's when they get wiped out. Hey. Does that does that answer yeah. your question, Robbie? Yeah, and yeah, I've never hunted a mule deer. Oh, okay. Um, one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're cool. Uh, and they're I, really cool, man. Yeah, they look cool, and I like that. You know, the fact that a lot of people, you know, you can kill them. You can well, not kill them. You can hunt them. Pretty much like from way, way early when they're still in velvet all the way to like deep snow, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, my, and I've, dude, mule is one of my favorite species to hunt. And I, my, per why is it your favorite species to hunt? So my, the, the reason I think they're my favorite species to hunt is because if you're hunting them outside of the rut, they're, it's amazing how, how much hunting pressure they can avoid. I mean, I, in the area that I, that I guided in and outfitted in the majority of, of, you know, my professional career, we killed two, like every two or three years, we'd kill a 200 inch plus mule deer, right? And this is an area that gets heavily hunted. And I worked day to day in this area, packing in camps, riding in and out, you know, was in there all scouting for elk, 
hunting all the different species and the majority of the big deer that we killed, I'd never seen before. Wow. And so, and that's like crazy. I mean, a lot of the, like a lot of the bull elk and stuff, I kind of knew what, what exactly was there. I'd see the bachelor groups, you know, I kind of knew what existed. The mule deer, no way, man. You know, they were just, hmm. we, we'd cat a lot of the big deer. Admittedly, we caught, we caught in the rut. Um, you know, we caught, we just, they showed up in the rut chasing does, pockets of does that were, you know, that were local and we would find them. I, I think part of that was, I found, I figured out over time that the deer just move like a really long ways and not just from one top of the mountain down, they go down, up, down, up. They have these, these historical migration paths, but the more succinct answer to your question, and this is going to sound this is going to, this is going to be me admitting a little ego in the, in the, the whole, the whole hunting deal. <laughs> and that's that my personal belief is these guys, and, and I'm not, I'm not one of them. Um, I've done a, a bit of it, but you know, these individuals that hunt mule deer during second, second rifle in Colorado, you know, that mid October to, you know, the first of November, the guys who hunt mule deer during that period of time. And a lot of times they do that, and that's their infatuation because they can draw tags during that period of time. They can't hunt them in the rut every year. But if they're hunting them in that latter half of October, it's really hard to find them at that point. They're, yeah. you know, they're, they're kind of just holed up. They haven't had to move yet. The rut hasn't hit. The individuals that are killing big, massive mule deer during that period of time consistently, I personally think are the best hunters out there. You know, it's mm. really hard hunting. It's really physically trying. It's very psychological trying. It's just hard. And the other thing about mule deers, or excuse me, mule deer, due to their kind of lack of being adaptable, there's very few places where you can just buy one. There's a cup. There's a couple spots, but just buying the opportunity where you just go out and shoot a huge one, really rare. You know, and a mm -hmm. lot of other species are not like that. So that's that's kind of my spiel on on why I think they're a special species. But I see I see mule deer based on people's videos on Instagram on people's yards and cities yeah, yeah. and whatnot. So they must be adaptable. Well, they get habituated to to um you know to like if you go into some of these areas in the mountains, they'll be they'll be in people's yards. But if you look at them, if you statistically look at what development does to them, they don't do well. It's you, not good. Yeah, for yeah. Them. When you like. You know, you drive around Estes Park, and like, and you see you see a residential herd of elk that's thriving. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they they are thriving, high calf ratio. If a it, or if a if a if a neighborhood dog chases them, a cow elk will just whip the dog's ass. You know what I mean? What do you think's going to happen when a wolf shows up? Yeah, Estes well, that Park? yeah, that'll be totally different dynamic. <laughs> but uh, but my. What I was getting to on that, Robbie, is the mule deers, they just, once they're in town, man, they don't last very long. They get hit hey. by car. They and the dogs chasing stuff. But yeah, I know the wolf dynamic in, in Colorado, whenever those wolves are on wintering elk that are in these towns, it's going to be interesting. Who knows, man? It's going to be, it'll be, <laughs> you know, and again, most of these towns are where the people voted for wolves to come back. And when that first wolf pack finds them, and it, it, you know, it may be 10 years from now. Yeah, sure. Maybe 15 years from now, but oh my God, it's going to, I think roles are going to reverse very quickly. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting, man, because really, 
in the mountain towns. So, I if you don't if you don't live in these mountain towns, I think it's hard to get like a feel for the politics, you know, Robbie. Um, but most the let's say the Colorado mountain towns, right? Most of them are actually kind of split politically, right? You've got you've got like the old guard, the ag guys, the hunters, you know, kind of you know that sort of you know let's call it you know right leaning conservative mm-hmm. folks, and mm-hmm. then you have a big a big population in a lot of these towns. You know, I'm not talking about Vail or Aspen. They're going to be the anomaly steamboat springs. They're going to be all all kind of uh, more left leaning. But most of these mountain towns are mixed because you've got the old guard and then you've got all the mountain bikers, all the people that just enjoy the outdoors. They came from California, Texas, whatever, and they're politically mixed. But most of those mountain towns voted against the wolf thing. You know what I mean? Even yeah. even like the, quote, urban population in the small mountain town, they were like, nah, that's not a good idea. You know, the the the, you know, the population on the front range really doesn't live in the mountains they're the ones who who voted for it most Mm -hmm. it's really it's really interesting man it really has been uh interesting to me because in my time spent in eagle uh where i live you know it's like a bedroom town of vale the the ski resort town where i lived for a long period of time you know half of my friends were pretty left-leaning the majority of them could have a rational discussion about the wolf deal and understand that it was not a great idea. I, the, I, yeah. and, I and I don't yeah. think they were trying to, I don't think they were trying to, you know, lean, you know, just appease me or anything like that. I had a lot of rational conversations with people that are like, yeah, it's just not a very good, I, you know, it's probably, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. I think this is what we fundamentally deal with is uh, not just hunters, but a lot of these political questions, man, is there's a distance from the people who kind of see see the, you know, on the, on the ground, like, dynamic in these areas, and then there's people who kind of live in la-la land, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it's not, not fault of them. I mean, if I lived in an urban environment and every day I stepped out on the concrete, I'd probably have a di- very different perspective on life. Well... You know, if you had asked me about hunting when I was 19, 20, 21, living in Johannesburg, South Africa, eight and a half million people. Yeah. I wouldn't have an opinion on it. I'd be that that middle ground person. Um, I wouldn't have a negative perception. I might have had a, a slightly positive perception because I knew my grandfather and father hunted, but I'd never done it. I'd never participated in it. My friends didn't do it. Um just wasn't in my circle right it was it was always like in the periphery like yeah i think a lot of times we you know we feel like the hunting issues and the controversies around hunting are like everyone knows about them and everyone <laughs> yeah. is talking about them it's like no ask yeah. my wife my wife's like what are you talking about i haven't heard about that period dude i mean yeah most people i mean most people you know like my world, man, is all about this lion deal in Colorado. It's all I get the message about. The majority of this world is worried worried about the fact that, you know, the next world war might blow out here. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? This is not even on their radar. So yeah, it's 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 interesting how our perspectives shape shape what we what we spend our, our our bandwidth on, you know. Yeah. Well, we certainly should um put our heads together about the next thirteen months in Colorado. I've got some good ideas. Um, specifically around like some round tables, 
um, with some influencer type communities that live outside of the hunting space. Cause that's sure. one of the things that I'm striving to do is like, is like pin go into those big communities, like a CrossFit community. A CrossFit community is typically not your hunter base right. type community, but there's some big influential CrossFitters in Colorado that hunt. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a, I think it's a, um, it's an information dissemination problem. You know what I mean, Robbie? Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably, mm -hmm. it's probably a valid, uh, a valid uh, approach. You know what I mean? I think, I think right now, for instance, it, or just, it, I guess it, it'll, it'll support your, what, what you're talking about. I think there's a lot of, I, I think if you did the wolf vote again in Colorado today, I don't think it would pass even close. I think, or I will, it'd be, I think it would be 5%. I think in the last, whatever, two years since the vote or the ballot initiative, and then it actually being on the, the ballot and being voted on, I think 5% of at least would have flipped just, mm -hmm. just on voter remorse, getting more information about, you know, how, you know, mm -hmm. some of the more, you know, simple concept within it that, you know, even just the cost of it, right, or how it's mm -hmm. going to be, all that, I think would have flipped 5%. So to me, it's just an information distribution failure. Right. That's it. Yep, that's what we're going to be all about, man. It's all about that. It literally comes down to the kinds of content you can create and the information distribution system that you can put in place. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because I... Uh, I actually try to consume some of the content that people that I would disagree with on this subject put out. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of it's not all that good, Robbie. You know what I mean? Like if, if people, yeah. if people really don't, like, I think it's, it's very emotionally, it, you know, it's emotionally triggering, but most people, I personally think the better of people in the sense that people will look beyond that, like, first strike of emotion because a lot of people don't even trust most of the media they see anyways now so i think it's if all the depth of their mes message is based on emotion i think that can that 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 that's not going to solidify in people's brains if you have some other information out there that maybe has a little more rational explanation to it mm -hmm. and uh distributes some some useful information to people yeah i think one of the things that not to give our playbook away but of the 13 states that allow mountain lion hunting today, one does not, and that is California. Yeah. And serves as a very good case study for what happens. Yeah. When a ban gets put in place. And the data, the science, you can't argue with it. Well, you can argue with it, but it's, it's yeah, data. Yeah, sure. That shows... If, if a ban is truly interested in removing the death of an animal through a certain activity, that's one thing. But California, as an example, has shown that that was not the case. Yeah. The same amount of animals died, if not more. Yeah. And, and, it's and just via, the activity is not there anymore. Yeah. And via, well, the thing is, Robbie, the activity is still there. It's just centralized to certain guys getting paid to do it. The way the way they're getting killed, and and I like I can understand why somebody who's never lion hunted and who is just a you know uh, 
let's say an unbiased observer to this whole thing, I can understand how they can view it as distasteful. I I, I think I have the clarity in my mind to understand that, even though it's sure. something that I've been around a lot, I can understand why they view that as distasteful. And I think there's a whole process of of how you can explain to somebody, um, you know, why this is going on, the way it's going on. You could take people on those hunts. I've done it a bunch. And if people see the other side of it, some of them are going to walk away from it and still not, it's not their thing. I get it. But to your point, to argue that a law like this is going to take away the exact way that lions are killed in Colorado is, is just false. They're, they're still, <laughs> they're still hunting them with dogs. They're still, you know, they're, then they're using other methods too in, in California to kill them that, that are, <laughs> you know, that are, that are probably not, there's probably not as much oversight. Let's be honest. If, it, if you <laughs> call up a guy and his job is just to kill mountain lions as a profession, like he, I mean, he's going to do it by whatever means they set out in front of him. And he's kind of outside what, you know, the, the set of rules that we're all exposed to in a, in just a, you know, a public, you know, hunting opportunity way. So to your point, to argue that there, that like no lions should be killed, like you're just disgusted with the idea of a lion getting killed. Well, this, this is not going to solve that at all. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, I can't wait for you to see lion heart. You need to see Lionheart. What, 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 give me the, what, what, what is it? So Lionheart is a documentary and unbelievably the timing is unbelievably perfect. Okay. That we at Blood Origins have funded. Oh, okay, cool. And it's about the relationship of a houndsman and his dog. Oh, okay. And we follow five different families across the West. Montana with Tyler Jonathan, Wyoming with the Haslers, the Whitaker brothers in Colorado. Okay. The Meekums down in Utah. The Meek, Becky the, and Clive. Uh, yeah, I know the Meekums are good, good people, man. Yeah, the Beck, Becky and Clive, uh, uh, Cleve, Dwyer in Nevada, and we mash all of them together essentially. And Lionheart, essentially, we take you on a hunt, but along that hunt is this narrative of why they do what they do, what they believe, and the respect and whatnot. And the film's forty minutes long. And it takes that long to you to get to the line in the tree at the end of the film because we wanted to explain through the film like it's not just a kind of process. Right. You know, there's a lot to it. And it's just a, and it was built, we built Lionheart specifically for someone who does not understand Lionheart. Oh, okay. I love it, man. And is not a hunter. Is there, is there, so, is it already released, Robbie? No, it's in the film festival space right now. Oh, okay. So we 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 we're putting it in the film festival space, but we are going to put it on the road okay. over the next thirteen months. Specifically, from August to November next year, we'll be you know booking in cinemas and theaters in Colorado. Yeah, and so we have this tool now at our disposal that we've never had before. Yeah, yeah. Well, in your and you've you've already got it made, which I think a lot of times is the the problem, right? Just a temporal problem. Um, yeah. To get the stuff together, but. What's interesting, man, is like all the the families you mentioned, in the world of this turning into like a contract killing world of lions, those are going to be the families that would be the natural, you know, the natural providers of that service to a state. And I would guess, I mean, I you know, I know some of the younger Meekums, um, not a single one of them wants to do that. That that would be mm-hmm. like 
heartbreaking for them to be a contract lion killer, right? Mm-hmm. And it would, it would, it's, it's such an interesting, um, th- what I would say is that some of the strongest compassion I've, I've hunted with the younger Meekum a bit, some of the strongest compassion for lions has been from him. You know what I mean? And so it's the idea of them being kind of, I don't know, like minimized to like contract lion killers under some world where it was illegal to hunt lions in Colorado or Utah or what are these other places is sad. And I don't think they want any, mm-hmm. any part of it, but they're the natural talent pool and they're going to kill lions just like how they're killing lions now. Yeah, 100%. Anyway, I will... uh I may sneak you a, a, a sneaky Vimeo link. Yeah, uh, cool, so that man. you can watch it. Yeah, I'd love to as see As long it. as you promise not to share it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'll, I'll bootleg it and put it on my YouTube so people yeah, can. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The last thing I'm going to say is uh, welcome to the Biltong tribe. Dude, I'm a fan. It is like when people, when I talk about Biltong, like that's what kids cut their teeth on in South Africa. Okay. Right? Biltong, the slabs that you got. Yeah. Like, if you go to South Africa, and hopefully you do one day, and you walk into, they've still got traditional butcher shops everywhere. You walk into a butcher shop, there's slabs of biltong hanging in every single butcher shop. Sounds like paradise, you get to man. go behind the counter, and you get to feel what moisture content you want. Oh, uh, okay. And you're like, all right, I want this one. And they all have the little fatty strip on the side, and they chop it up right there. And they fill a bag. It's a. It typically comes in a big brown paper sack. Okay. And by the time you got home, like the fat of the fat has leaked into the brown paper sack. Yeah, so it's got sure. The, the, but welcome to the Biltong Tribe with Aoba I- and David Ferreira. Yeah, what yeah, a boy, yeah. Man. You, oh, yeah. Okay, so you know David. That's uh, yeah. That's cool, man. Well, I I have to ask Robbie, like, why why is it not a thing in the U.S.? Because you guys have built. It's a. It's the same, I'll give you the exact same answer as to why is the U.S. not the best uh, soccer-playing nation in the world. You should be. Yeah. Because you, do, you, won't grow, you didn't grow up on it. Yeah, it's just you path. That's not the thing. Yeah, just it's path just, dependent. Yeah. Yeah, so jerky is your thing. Your, the sweet teriyaki sort of base of jerky is what you guys are used to. You're not, you're not a malt vinegar, salt, pepper, coriander-based dried meat country tradition dude it's the thing that's crazy is i i don't know like now i wouldn't touch jerky man because it's (laughs) well first of all like all the commercial options and and maybe you know i i need to probably know more about the the biltong process but the biltong process is like pretty pretty kind of whole foods-esque right no, it's an air-dried it's an air-dried beef that's why you see it behind the butcher counter in south africa they just hang up slabs of meat they've done the they've done the brining yeah they've done the the coating on the top of it which typically is a salt pepper coriander yeah coating. yeah sure and then they just hang it up and yeah. it's air-dried beef that's yeah. all it is yeah dude i if if i was gonna bet on a trend i'm all over it man it's becoming bigger and bigger. Every jerky company has their own little biltong piece now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But from what I've seen, man, like uh, David and those guys, like they mu- they got authentic roots. So they, um, I, I was talking to David, and we were talking about another brand of biltong. 
only a South African would know. Like if you put biltong, if you give me biltong and I try it, yeah, I'll be like, mm, no, that's not it. Okay. Mm, that's not it. But I tried David's biltong and I was like, oh, that's it. Uh, okay, good. That's good to know, man. I'm glad I'm not like off, the, off the, base. The, the taste, like the taste and that sort of back end, whatever you, I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah, yeah. That's authentic biltong. Good deal, man. That's good. That's good to know. Well, welcome to the tribe. Cliff Gray, thank you so much, dude. Um, big fan of yours, and I look forward to just staying in touch as we move through this next 13 months of Colorado, for sure. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Robbie. I appreciate you having me on, man. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.